Hi folks, just a quick word from our friends at Vodafone Business before we start the show. You know, I used to think of Vodafone Business merely as a reliable provider for my mobile and broadband needs. But did you know they now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer just a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. Anne-Marie, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. We're, uh, we're solving all the world's problems today. We've got some hot topics on the, uh, on the agenda. I was left out of the planning meeting and you went very political on me, so I'm looking forward to this uh, to this episode, but we're going to start today with basically just the proliferation of big money in sports. So there's so many directions we could go with this, and it's not exactly a new thing to see this amount of money pouring into sports, but this last month alone has seen some monster deals, and I want to touch on why this might be. If not different, we'll say, to pass, at least stepping it up a pretty significant notch. Um, so we're going to start with Messi which might be appropriate considering how this show could end up going, uh, which is it's kind of come as a shock, basically, that he ended up in the MLS at Inter Miami, having reportedly turned down a billion-dollar deal in Saudi Arabia, which we're going to touch on those lads in a bit as well. But Amory, can you explain to me why the Messi deal was such a coup and how Apple have been involved in all this? Yeah, it's uh, it really does revolve around Saudi Arabia, as you, as you just mentioned. Uh, it's rumored that Al Halal reportedly offered him four hundred million dollars a year to take a contract with them. He's thirty five years old. He's he's you know he's he's past his peak, but uh, that's crazy money. And and yeah, he said no, which was pretty shocking. Um, it's also he also has just come from another kind of um, Arab sponsored big money team, which he's leaving Paris Saint Germain, um, which is owned by the Qatari government, um, and they really were instrumental in having enough money to bring him from Barcelona. As everyone remembers, when he left Barcelona several years ago, it was clearly something he didn't really want to do. He's been with that team since what he was like thirteen or fourteen years old, and the reason he had to leave is Barcelona's uh, finances are in a bit of a state, and they couldn't afford to keep him. Um, and so he had to walk away because they quite literally couldn't pay his salary. And he ended up following another big name players to PSG that had the money to keep them. So um, interesting now to see him in some way turn away from money. But as you mentioned, there seems to be a couple of interesting things baked into his MLS deal. So while he's not getting a huge amount of cash up front, the Americans are paying him in other ways that will probably be a bunch of money down the line. Um so there was also kind of an expectation, I should mention, that he would go to Saudi Arabia because he's a tourism ambassador for them. That was a big thing during the World Cup. He was in a lot of uh, billboards and commercials for them. They were running all the time, even on streaming services. Um, so he kind of already has this established relationship there. He was actually fined uh, a couple months ago, and I think he had a game suspension because he took a sponsored trip to Saudi Arabia that I think he didn't properly disclose to the league. So, you know, he already kind of had associations there, so you think he, he would have taken the deal. So... Um, um, finding out exactly what the MLS has given him is quite interesting. Um, there's a number of kind of facets that we know are confirmed, but there's a number mm. of speculation as well of things that, that are not directly in his MLS deal, but are kind of associated with it that will get him money down the line. Yeah, um, I think that's the interesting part of the deal. It's not just one figure on a piece of paper. There's a lot of implications. So could you touch on those, especially kind of how it comes into the playing rights and how Apple is such a pivotal factor in it. 
Definitely. So uh, MLS Commissioner uh, Don Garber told The Athletic in March that the league was quite literally willing to run every opportunity to help Inter-Miami sign Messi, which that's kind of a shocking thing to, to, to hear when it comes to soccer. You know, you never hear Tottenham or Chelsea gets full support of the Premier League when they're trying to sign a new player. But this really is just reflective of the fact the MLS is trying to build its status in the international community. And they know that bringing a player like Messi to any team in the league um, would be huge. Uh, this is actually something that they have done in the past uh, when David Beckham agreed to go to the LA Galaxy that must be 10 years ago at that point. That was seen as this like huge coup, the fact that he was turning away from European soccer. Um, and they had to make a bunch of adjustments to their uh, financial rules in order to allow that to happen. Um, one of which was that David Beckham would be allowed to start an MLS team after his contract expired for as little as $25 million, which is basically nothing. Imagine being a majority stakeholder in a football team for $25 million. Think of how much Premier League teams go for billions of dollars. So um, it's believed that Messi already has that agreement in his contract, which should mean after he retires, he could start his own team in the United States, um, which could be quite profitable. Um, This rule was also designated because of David Beckham. It used to be that there were salary caps in the MLS, um, but now every team gets three players every year who are not a part of their salary cap. So they could be paying Messi anything. We actually, we don't know. Um, But the really interesting deal is that it's believed that he's going to be getting paid by Apple as well. Apple owns the streaming rights to the MLS worldwide, internationally. Uh, You have to buy a Game Pass in order to watch the games. It's like $20 for a season, which is not too bad. Um, And it costs them $2.5 billion to get the rights to the MLS. That's pretty expensive for a league that probably isn't on the top of anyone's must-watch list. Um, And so it's believed that for every new sign-up, since his contract has been announced, Messi will be getting a percentage of that money. And uh, that rumor initially came out, I believe, in The Athletic. It has then been... um, picked up by a number of larger newspapers. So I think we're pretty much confirmed on that. So um, this is definitely Apple trying to prove to the world that its $2.5 billion investment wasn't a huge waste of money. Um, this could pay off when Messi moved to PSG. Uh, his his uh, debut game was watched by 2.2 million people in Spain, and that was like a record number of people from Spain to be tuning into a French league. So, you know, that could work. I mean, there's also the argument to say that Messi is Argentinian. He's probably looming large in the minds of, of Argentinians at the minute because he did help them win the World Cup last year. Um, and Miami plays in a more favorable time zone than any of the European leagues. It will also allow him to be geographically closer to Argentina. So um, I'd say the MLS is using this, as is Apple, uh, as a way to launch the league into South America and then maybe later on Europe because, again, with the time zone changes, these games are not going to be playing at a super favorable time for Europeans. Um, But beyond that, there's actually another interesting element, another outside sponsor that could be trying to take a cut here, um, which is Adidas. Um, Adidas has had a long time contract with Messi. He uh, was one of their first kind of big signings several years ago. Uh, He signed a lifetime contract with the brand in 2017. But unfortunately for Adidas, uh, every single club that Messi has played with, it's only two, it's Barcelona and PSG, has been sponsored by Nike. So for the entirety of his club career, he has been playing in Nike uniforms, despite the fact that in his all his free time and training time, he's in Adidas gear. Uh, the MLS is officially partnered with Adidas, so all of the uniforms in the league are made by them. Uh, so it is possible that Adidas might have cut a deal with the league um, that they're going to get a percentage of the number of shirts sold. Again, There's a history of this. When Messi transferred to PSG, uh, there was a huge spike in the number of PSG jerseys sold, and 60% of those new jerseys sold were Messi jerseys. So, you know, there's a strong possibility here that Adidas is also going to give him a cut. I don't know. 
10% of MLS shirt sales will probably be going into Messi's pocket on top of whatever ridiculous lump sum of cash he's about to be handed by uh, Inter-Miami. And of course, David Beckham, who owns Inter-Miami. And is also a big Adidas uh, endorsee for years and years. So there's always, it's all, it's all connected in some shape or form. I'm interested though, I'm really interested from the business perspective of Apple getting involved because this seems to be a tact that a lot of big tech has taken recently in terms of live sports and what their position is in the wider market, wider content market in general. Because we've seen Google fork out, I think it's $2 billion a year for NFL Sunday ticket rights they're putting on YouTube. Amazon is paying about half that for the rights to the Thursday night games in the NFL as well. I know the NFL is the big ticket item when it comes to sports in the US, but how much value is there for these companies in sports rights? Because we're seeing yeah. the three biggest companies or three of the four biggest companies on the market right now investing billions into sports. Yeah, I, I think it's actually pretty huge. I mean, you know, we're going through a writer strike at the minute and they're fighting for better compensation because they say that streaming has simultaneously increased the need for and cash value of content, particularly content that's beloved, but in simultaneously increased writer's pay. So there is this kind of market sentiment at the minute that if you control a media asset that already has an established legacy and audience, it's worth a tremendous amount of money. Um, and we've been seeing that probably for the last five years. And really all you need to do is look at any kind of big team sales that have happened in, in the last couple of years. Um, so the Los Angeles Angels, which are famous baseball team. Um, they were bought in 2003 for $183 million, and they are now valued at $2.5 billion. That is an astounding return on investment. Uh, it's also worth saying that Mark Cuban, very famous owner of the Dallas Mavericks, he bought them back in 2000 for $285 million, uh, and the team is now valued at $3.3 billion. Um, he actually tells a really great story on his decision to buy the team because he went to their season opener in 2000, uh, and the stadium wasn't even sold out. And he was like, how could an NBA team not sell at the stadium on, on, on the first day? So he basically went in there and uh, rejigged everything, and they won the NBA Finals five or six years ago now. So uh, it's been pretty great for him. Uh, And valuations of these sports teams are rising because their media rights are just worth an absolute fortune. The NFL just signed a new media deal in 2022, which now makes them worth $100 billion for 10-year media rights. And those media rights have obviously been divided out between as you mentioned, their Thursday night football has gone to Amazon, but traditional uh, television networks in the United States would also be placing bids in for certain days of the week as well. Um, Mm. That's up- it's interesting, actually, if you look at the, like, we'll say, the 50 most watched TV items over the past year, I think 48 of them are NFL games. It completely dominates yeah. the zeitgeist. And for the marketing to like the American people, like that's so key. I mean, we're everyone is always referencing the cost of a Super Bowl ad. So um, yeah, it's definitely the market to be in. But it's, it's also worth saying that NFL deal, $100 billion, that has doubled in 10 years. So that's pretty impressive. Maybe arguably more impressive is the fact that Major League Baseball has increased its rates despite the fact that it's like <laughs> an aging sport that has very much fallen out of favor in the United States. And yet they're still able to demand a huge amount of money for their licensing rights. Uh, MLB games used to be shown on, on like TBS, which is like a second rate linear TV channel in the US. TBS has lost those rights because streaming services were willing to outbid them um, for the right. And that that really seems to be the the big battle here is, is cable 
TV is losing out to big tech companies because big tech companies have the cash to splash. You know, if, if you're paying $2.5 billion to license something, you've got to have that or at least have the financing or the stock to back it up. So, you know, that's really difficult for some of these old world players, unless you're like ABC, which is at least owned by Disney. Um so that has meant that for a lot of these team owners, particularly aging team owners, they are very, very happy to sell their teams now for an absolutely huge premium because the licensing and the media rights have made their teams incredibly valuable, even if they're horrible. So like the Washington Nationals, for example, who are currently at like the bottom of the league in Major League Baseball, has $500 million of debt on its balance sheet. And Ted Leonis, who owns three other Washington sports teams, is still willing to pay $2 billion for the team. Like, wow. that's so that's insane. that's like the bottom marker, we'll say. Yeah. The, wor- the worst team and probably the least valuable sport in America is still going for $2 billion. So $2 billion, yep. That puts a floor on everything else. That's nuts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd say we're we're just going to see more and more of this. We're going to see NBA teams get picked up and will be teams picked up NFL teams. And then, I mean, we've seen a huge influx of the number of amount of foreign money pouring into uh, soccer leagues all across Europe to pick up these teams because they're just worth that amount of money, not only in media rights, but we got to talk about other things like merchandise. You know, uh, if you have some kind of association with the stadium, you're probably getting a back end cut there of like food, ticket attendance, all that type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's really a great time to be owning a, a sports team. Yeah, and you touched on foreign money there because there is another side to this. We mentioned Saudi Arabia. The Public Investment Fund has been investing hugely in sports. We've seen it. Um, and not, I'm sorry, not just Saudi Arabia. We've seen the a sovereign wealth funds from uh, the United Arab Emirates, from Qatar. You mentioned PSG at UAE's Man City. All of this money is coming in. But we're looking at other ways or sorry, not other ways, but other intentions maybe behind it. So you're saying all the sports media rights have gotten so much more valuable, but maybe there's, there's, I'd say, ulterior motives behind, yeah. say, these sovereign wealth funds that are closely attached to co- countries and perhaps branding and relationship building behind this. I think, especially in Saudi Arabia's case, a lot of it has been called sports washing, essentially, which is kind of trying to launder a country's reputation and maybe paper over the cracks in in some shape or form by elevating it alongside other sports teams or in the world of golf. It's just partnered with the PGA Tour as well, which is very controversial. I'm just kind of wondering, it seems like there's such a truckload of money coming in all at once right now. Is this sustainable, shall we say? Yeah, I think... What you said in the intro is important to remember, like Saudi Arabia is pursuing the sports world as a PR move in addition to a financial one. There is obviously money to be made here, particularly in underutilized assets. I think that's a big thing to think about with um, the golf with golf. Um, It's funny because I remember seeing a tweet last year that talked about how if you uh, go to the Masters, the food at the Masters is apparently dirt cheap. Like you can get a sandwich and a drink at the Masters tournament for like four dollars. Yeah. And I remember seeing that being like, that's so great that they've gone out of their way that if you get a ticket to the Masters, you can get a sandwich for $4. That's so nice. And then I remember thinking, if you were at any other stadium, that sandwich would be $25. And mm. then the next thing we knew, Saudi Arabia had bought out, you know, the the entire of, of, of pro golf. So, you know, I do think that there is money to be made here. But I, I think you're right. Like a lot of this is is wanting to be associated with something else. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 initiative 
aims to reduce Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil. So great, let's make some money on sports. Um, but also wants to help improve Saudi Arabia's international persona, which is often unfortunately associated with some civil rights abuses. And I think like they're not alone in that categorization. I think a lot of countries from the Middle East because of their labor laws are associated with that. I mean, there was a huge backlash to the most recent World Cup um, for that reason. So um, when will this end? Or like, what's the ceiling on it? I don't know. Um, You know, I suppose there's a finite number of sports teams that can be purchased. I wouldn't be surprised if they started new leagues. But, um, you know, they're already trying to build upon a strong sports foundation that they have within native leagues within Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East. Uh, There's an Arab Basketball League, for example, that has been curating a a love of basketball there for several decades now. So it does seem logical of, oh, yeah, like the Saudi Arabian government or wealth fund should be looking for ways to then connect in with the NBA. Um, So, like, I guess that's a that would tell you that, okay, like, they'll probably be more receptive to basketball than baseball. But I actually don't think you even need a legitimate connection between any of these sports for you to become an investor. I actually think the only thing that's going to stop them is regulation. Um, The reason that the Premier League for so long has seen so much foreign money pouring in is, is because it's pretty easy in the Premier League to become successful if you have an unlimited amount of cash. Um, you, just to see that, like Newcastle, for example, um, ha- became more like Champions League due to Saudi investments in the club because of just their ability to pay and attract in top players. Um, that is like much tougher in some other leagues that have regulation in place. So, for example, um, the NFL has a has a very strict salary cap. So it doesn't matter if you have an owner who's a multi-billionaire who's willing to splash the cash to try and bring, I don't know, Tom Brady out of retirement. It doesn't really matter. Whereas, you know, the NBA has what's called a soft salary cap, meaning that teams are allowed to exceed their annual salary cap in, in exchange for other types of penalties. I believe it's oftentimes tied to um, how where they will sit in the NBA draft. But you know what? Like if you could sign like a major player, if you could sign Kevin Durant, you probably would be like, that's fine. We will give up our spot in the first two rounds of the draft. You know, teams will make decisions like that. Um, so I would say, you know, looking to the, towards the future, I wouldn't be surprised to see Saudi money begin to move into something like the NBA. Um, I don't think baseball is off the table. Uh, MLB also has a very soft salary cap. So again, money really talks there. Um, they have also had a series of rule changes with the MLB in the last couple of years. There was an easing on ownership rules in 2019, um, which allows investment funds to acquire minority stakes in multiple teams, which, you know, it makes sense that you shouldn't be allowed to own multiple MLB teams at one time. That's gone away. So, you know, I don't know, maybe the Washington Nationals will be owned by the Saudi Wealth Fund at some point. Um, yeah, that's, so... That's, that's kind of a metaphor <laughs> for a lot deeper stuff, I think, yeah. there, but we won't get into it. Yeah, Um so where's the end to this? As I kind of said, there's a limited number of professional teams. Uh, many of these leagues have caps on that, you know, particularly American sports, like don't have the relegation system. So it's not like we have like a second and a third level that you could also be investing in with the idea, you know, you can't be Ryan Reynolds and go and pick up Wrexham and be like, do you know what? In 10 years, maybe we'll have gotten to English League One or whatever. We, we don't have an infrastructure like that. So there's only, I think, 32 teams in the NFL. So I suppose you can only own 32 football teams then. Um, so like, I, th- I suppose that's, that's, that is the cap that you, you, that you will be pursuing is, is there will either need to be some kind of regulation, which I haven't heard anything about that being considered on a state or federal level, or they'll, they run out of money. I suppose that's, those are the two, the two ways this could end. 
yeah, 620 billion sovereign wealth fund. It'll be a while before they run out of money anyways. But it is, yeah. it's kind of sad, I suppose, when there's just endless resources. Once they put their crosshairs on you, that's about it, really. I think that's what happened with golf for sure. But um, we'll move on then to uh, another hot topic. I don't know who planned this podcast. I was out for Monday, so I'm... <laughs> I'm coming up slow to it, but uh, during the week, the Wall Street Journal reported that American tech giants are slowly cutting off Hong Kong internet users. So the story dives into how Hong Kong users are being prevented access from services like AI chatbots, social media sites, and even streaming services from America's biggest companies as they, as they fear running afoul of the region's strict censorship laws. Emish, what can you tell us about this story? Yeah, it's actually a very interesting story, Mike, because the city of Hong Kong is really known, or at least has been known, for this vibrant culture and being a business powerhouse. And it's historically been celebrated for the free flow of information. But alas, and as one might have guessed, storm clouds are gathering. And I think it's worth reminding our listeners about, I suppose, the relatively recent history of Hong Kong and what what happened since 1997. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this, or perhaps all of them know this, but I think it's worth just taking a little walk through the history. Um, well, the British transferred control of Hong Kong to Beijing in 1997, and a pledge was made that um, the city would self-govern and would have freedoms of assembly, speech, and press for those 50 years um, and these kind of um, they were freer than on mainland China under communist rule however now after 26 years of Beijing's rule is it 26 yes it's 26 these promises are wearing thin so Hong Kong's initial period of relative stability and continuity uh, rese- resembling where it was when it was under British rule has now ended and its future certainly remains uncertain as a result of forces that are really far beyond the island's influence. So prior to the handover, um, residents of Hong Kong expressed concerns about the impending changes that were going to come their way when effectively they were under Beijing's administration and consequently loads of people hurried to obtain residency elsewhere and some even relocated abroad and I've made friends with such individuals. I know quite a few people who lived in Hong Kong, were born in Hong Kong and got out of Dodge uh, as soon as or soon after uh, Beijing took control of the island. So, so, but for the initial decade after the handover up until around, I guess, 2007, these precautions uh, by individuals certainly seemed uh, excessive, like for all intents and purposes, this was a bustling capitalist hub on China's southern east coast that appeared to maintain freedoms while experiencing a thriving economy. So that was where we got to. However, in recent years, Beijing has progressively expanded its influence and its control over Hong Kong. And these actions were seemingly accelerated by large-scale pro-democracy demonstrations in 2014 and in 2019. And now schools in Hong Kong are required to include lessons on patriotism and national security. And even uh, newly published textbooks uh, deny the historical existence of Hong Kong as a British colony. I mean, that's 
quite incredible because if you change the story for the children, you change it for generations. And that, I guess, brings us to the story at hand. And American, as you said, Mike, American tech giants like Google and OpenAI and Microsoft have been restricting access to their AI chatbots on the island, which, as the Wall Street Journal piece says, puts Hong Kong in the same boat as North Korea, Syria and Iran, where access to all chatbots are also restricted. And what's what's causing these tech giants to recall? Well, officially, no reason has been given, but it's probably down to a national security law that was imposed by China just three years ago that clamps down on criticism of the government. So, for example, freedom of the press has come under attack and pro-democracy newspapers openly critical of the government, such as Apple Daily, have been forced to close. In fact, Apple Daily's publisher, Jimmy Lay, was actually jailed. So, on top of that, the Hong Kong Department of Justice is adding fuel to the fire and they've been taking swings at free speech by blocking online distribution of a song called glory to Hong Kong, which is a pro-democracy anthem. And and YouTube is being targeted because, obviously enough, it hosts videos of the anthem. And I had to listen to it online. It's very national anthem-y. It's no banger, I may as well tell you. But the lyrics are very stirring. Like, for example, I have some of the lyrics here. It says, We pledge no more tears on our land. In wrath doubts dispelled, we make our stand. Arise ye who would not be slaves again. For Hong Kong may freedom reign. And then it does a few more verses. I don't think there's a chorus, which is probably a musical attribute of a lot of anthems, but let's not go there. And then the final verses says... Break now the dawn, liberate our Hong Kong. In common breath, revolution of our times, may people reign proud and free and evermore glory be to thee, Hong Kong. So it's not exactly an ambiguous uh, ditty. It's a fairly clear message, you know. So you can see that if you're a young Hong Konger, you'd kick open the door of your apartment and head off to show China who's boss. Uh, until you remember that Article 1 of the Hong Kong Basic Law states that Hong Kong is an inalienable part of the People's Republic of China and any advocacy for Hong Kong separating it from China has no legal basis. So to say that Hong Kong, uh, which was once regarded as the Manhattan of the East or the New York of the East or whatever, you know, it was it was like a little piece of America or at the very least it was like London in 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 the east it's undergoing radical upheaval and uh and it's it's uh it's it's quite a big story to be honest mike mm, yeah and because we know that basically all american tech companies have been banned in some shape or form from china mainland yeah. china and this is kind of probably pushing hong kong at least in perception wise from america much closer to mainland china so what what are the re- repercussions here, I suppose, on both sides of it? Well, for a start, um, there's fewer episodes of The Simpsons available on Disney. Uh, they held back two episodes. <laughs> they held up two episodes from their streaming service in Hong Kong uh, as the content could potentially clash with the national security law. So you now only have 400, sorry, 748 episodes of The Simpsons to watch as opposed to 750. But on a serious note, though, the tech giants retreat from Hong Kong, um, or basically has slipped Hong Kong closer 
to mainland China's internet restrictions, which is often referred to as the Great Firewall. Apple, for example, has partnered with China's Tencent to filter websites. So some users have even claimed that legitimate websites were blocked temporarily and they shared screenshots and the likes online and, and Tencent was flagging um, and blocking access to, lights like, uh, to sites like GitLab and Coinbase, uh, which were later made available again. But nonetheless, Hong Kong is not going down without a fight. The city's residents have been, you know, resourceful as people are when you're born with something and uh, in this case, access to the internet and you're used to uh, civil liberty that is access to the internet. Uh, People are using VPNs um, to circumvent the restrictions uh, along with some other third-party apps. But even though Hong Kong's population is not massive, um seven and a half million i think the city is is a major hub uh for foreign companies and workers primarily due to its previous free flow of information however a recent survey said that only 38 percent of people are optimistic that hong kong um will maintain free access to the global internet in the next three years and i think that's a real pity because what we're looking at here is as is a place that you know, enjoyed the same capitalist and civil liberties as here in Dublin or in New York or London, and they are rescinding very quickly. Mm, yeah, it is. It's worrying. Um, mm. Okay, we'll move on then. So if you're in listening to us and you're enjoying it, you're going to love reading from us. We are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we've covered with Charging and Fearless, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock, which that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo or Paris or anywhere in between. So that is a completely free stock pitch every week. Every week, You'll have it read in 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. Sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Right, uh, for Big Deal or No Deal this week, we have a few interesting stories. Emmett, you're up first uh, all around Netflix, your baby. Um, so mm-hmm. that headline is Netflix password crackdown boosts new subscribers to highest level since COVID began. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, For the last few weeks, I've been going, no big deal, no big deal, because quarterlies are quarterlies, but this is a big deal. And according to the streaming analytics company Antenna, Netflix amassed more new subscriptions in, in the US between May 25th and May 28th, shortly after Netflix notified users of the limits than in any other four-day period since Antenna began compiling such data in 2019. So just to remind our listeners what's going on, uh, the monthly cost of sharing your Netflix with an extra person is $2 less than a basic subscription and $1 more than the ad-supported plan. And Netflix has already rolled this out, uh, password sharing restrictions in the US um, and, of course, in Canada, Spain, Portugal, and I think New Zealand. So what they're doing here is they're monetizing all those people who we accidentally left logged in when we went home vis-a-vis our parents. They said that number was as high as 100 million users. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely ginormous. When you look at they, there was money on the table. Everybody knew it. So every customer of Netflix knew that 
well, if they were so inclined, they left it logged on in their parents' house or whatever, vice versa. And we all operated in this kind of wink, wink, quiet, don't mention it kind of environment. But of course, Netflix knew that that was a lot of money on the table. And I, I would imagine Reed Hastings strategically left that there for when he needed a booster rocket yeah. uh, the for second, the business. The second you see some churn, you're like, wait, we pull out this from the magic app. Yeah, that's ah, unbelievable. So I think it is a big deal. I think it's going to remain a big deal. I think that this, the, the balance sheet of Netflix quarter from this quarter onwards is going to have a very healthy uh, burgeoning line on it, which is uh, revenue from from past recurring plan. Yeah, the, it seems I know it's very early doors for both for the password sharing, of course, but even the ad supported tier, but both seem to be off to a very good start. Whether they can, yeah, me- mm. Mm. just something there for okay. everyone. Yeah. Okay. Next up for Amory, we're looking at why are thousands of Reddit pages going dark for forty eight hours? So. This is a protest from the subreddit moderators and admins that run so much of Reddit's community, basically. And it's kind of started to cast a shadow over the potential IBO, IPO that's been teased by Reddit. Uh, big deal or no big deal? Um, yeah, I, th- I think this is actually a big deal. Um, not just for Reddit, but I actually think it's it'll be an interesting moment for all of social media because this is the first time we're actually seeing users of a social media protest because they don't like a feature that's being rolled out. And so it'll be interesting to see what way this tips. I know that um, the CEO of Reddit has already come out to say, we're going to weather this storm, we're not changing our minds. But but I don't know, like this could be a pretty significant thing. So um, basically what's happening is in April, Reddit announced that it would start charging for developers to access its API, which stands for Application Programming Interface. It's basically how you would like build an application on top of Reddit. Um, And up to that point, it had been completely free. The reason being that was that Reddit completely lacked a mobile app up until 2016, but the website had launched in 2005. So that's over 10 years of essentially having to go to reddit.com on Safari or Chrome on your on your phone. So um, that meant that a bunch of independent creators went, hey, if we can have access to an API, we'll just do this for you. And a bunch of these apps cropped up. They're called Apollo or Narwhal or Relay or Infinity. They're all built upon Reddit's API. And, you know, Reddit did put out its own app in 2016. So you may be asking, like, well, how have these independent apps survived? And it really seems to be because they're just a bit more customizable. They tend to have features that users have given more feedback on. Oftentimes when Reddit rolls out some type of update that people don't like, it actually pushes a bunch of new users onto these independent apps. Um, And interestingly, I found out that a lot of them have gone out of their way to um, have uh, more accommodating design for for those who you know might be visually impaired or something like that. That's been a main criticism: is um, Reddit is effectively turning off a, a, a tool for for some of its users. Um, but this is kind of a very similar thing to you know Netflix allowing people to use accounts by sharing passwords. Uh, I think Reddit was just allowing this to kind of grow in the background until one day it decided, hey. You need to pass for this feature. Um, but in response, thousands, quite literally thousands of moderators for some of the biggest subreddits in the world have said, no, we're, we're doing a planned protest. We will be turning our threads private for 48 hours just so you can see the impact. And yes, that will mean that, you know, people who consistently use Reddit on a daily basis won't be able to access their favorite content. But arguably, most importantly, it means that these Reddit threads are going to come out of Google search, which is huge because as many of you know, sometimes when you need someone's opinion on something, you will type in whatever your question is, Reddit. 
in a Google in, in Google, and then go onto a Reddit thread and have a look. Um, well, with these moderators making these threads private, they're not going to show up. And that's a really important way for Reddit to grow organically. So I think depending on how the next 48 hours go, yeah, this could force Reddit to be like, okay, do you know what? We will give you a discount on the APR. We'll do, you know, something like that. Because if it conti- if they continue to charge the amount of money that they proposed in April, all of these third-party apps will have to close. They basically said there's no way that they can afford to do this. So, yeah, it's it's definitely one to watch. I think it will significantly impact uh, the company, which is trying to bring in more profit. They just laid off uh, 90 employees, which is about 5% of their workforce a couple months ago. So um, they seem to be doing what all big tech companies are doing right now trying to increase those margins yeah and kind of trying to almost profit from the free labor they've been getting for so long seems to be yeah the through point here as well um yeah yeah, i don't know i wouldn't be too excited now to go invest in reddit uh anytime soon but we'll see they've been talking about that ipo for years as well so i'd say there's reasons why it hasn't come to market just yet um Okay, elevator pitch to close us out. Uh, since we were talking about the business of sport, I just want you to pitch me two of your favorite sports-related stocks. Uh, Emmett, we'll start with you. Okay, right. Just to be original, I'm going to go with a golf brand we've never discussed, and it's a Kushnet Holdings with the mm. ticker Golf, which designs, manufactures, nice. and sells golf products in the US, Europe, and Middle East, Africa, Japan, Korea, and basically everywhere. Mike... Yes. And Dan Parent Marie. company, a Titleist. Correct. I was going to... Sorry. You ever use like it? Yes, exactly. I wondered. Yeah, no, that's okay. I was going to ask, had you ever used an Akushnet product? I know you have, but I wasn't <laughs> sure if you... So you're dead right. It operates four segments. Titleist golf balls, Titleist golf clubs, Titleist golf gear, and Footjoy golf wear. Um, and it has a profit margin of around 9%, operating margin 12.5%, very nice, return on assets, 8%, very nice, return on equity, 20%, very nice. Percentage held by insiders, 54%, very, very nice, hole in one. Yeah, so um, I think it's it's a nice little business because all they have to do is keep churning out those balls, sticks, shoes, and, and pants. So if you look at their <laughs> a Q1 should, net sale... You should go in and pitch them a new uh, mission statement. I'm their new Don Draper. I'm like, uh, ball sticks, uh, shoes, and pants. I'm your ball sticks, shoes, and pants guy. <laughs> nice to meet you, Don Draper. But um, their Q1 just passed, Q1 20. 23 net sales by segment which was quite interesting was that um all segments grew year on year the golf ball segment is up about 17 percent uh golf clubs up 12 percent the footwear or the foot joy golf wear was up three percent but their golf gear was up 52 percent so titleist gear is obviously buying on trend at the minute and then when you look at sales by region um emia declined by about 6.8%. Um, but the US grew 25%. Japan grew very marginally, about 1.3%. Korea grew by about 3.9%. And the rest of the world grew by 13.6%. So if you kind of exclude Europe, Europe Middle East, and Africa, 
they have all product lines are growing in all markets or at least have done until the end of Q1. It has quite a lot of doubt. I I got drawn into the story is quite interested because if you've ever stood in a golf club or, uh, you know, Titleist as a brand, it's kind of ubiquitous for golfers, a respected brand, I presume. Is their gear good, guys? I mean, I'm not a golfer, I'm a tennis player. Yeah, they'd be. They'd probably be the leading manufacturer in golf balls and golf clubs. I'd imagine. Mm. I think that's. Mm. I would have thought so. Say. Yeah, there's there's definitely a trifecta at the top there, anyways, mm-hmm. between TaylorMade, mm-hmm. Callaway, and Tideless. But I think you could call Tideless the premium brand. I don't think you'd get much arguments there. Yeah. Yeah, but what's kind of what for me? What's especially interesting is that this is not a fashion. It's not fickle. It's not like you know UGG boots. You know, are they going to be still relevant in three years? Like a tightless set of golf balls and a tightless set of clubs is respectable it's premium or near premium and it has a 20 percent return on equity so all these guys have to keep doing keep doing what they're doing right yeah um can we edit that into a nice sentence <laughs> that's that's another don draper line there to keep doing what you're doing do it more sticks balls <laughs> pants and shoes guys and keep doing what you're doing what you're doing so uh yeah but it's a 20 percent return on equity it's a known brand it's kind of sleepy i i didn't notice i don't have my uh uh, my sheet's open here, but um, I didn't notice if it pays a dividend, but it did have a, quite a bit of debt. But clearly, a business of this size and scale, operating in multiple divisions in more or less every market, would have debt that it can clearly control with a, with a return on equity of 20% and, and an operating margin of nearly 13%. So, yeah, I thought it was a nice one. That's a bet. Amory, what do you got for us? Um, I decided to go with F1 because... We initially dove into it several months ago uh, due to its association with Netflix because Drive to Survive has made F1, I don't know, becomes appealing to so many more people than we ever thought was possible. Um, It's part of the Liberty Media Corporation, which oversees a bunch of different brands. They own Sirius XM. Um, They own Live Nation. And uh, they own the Atlanta Braves, actually, which is a baseball team. (laughs) Who knew? Um, but the company has made the interesting decision of like each of the various segments has its own stocks. And then you, you in order to like get investor information, you have to go to the like holding company and then like pick through the presentation. Every like third slide is relevant to F1. Um, very interesting company. It's growing pretty quickly. I mean, over 20% revenue growth uh, from 2021 to 2022. Um, pretty good revenue growth as well, about 15% coming from 2019 to 2021. 2020, obviously, with the pandemic, weren't able to generate as much as you would like. Um, that does, however, mean its its valuation has gone up substantially. It's, it's, it's sitting at a price to sales right now of about eight. It's typically floating in and around five. So it is a little bit expensive. Um, and something else I noticed is that it has a lot of debt, much like other companies that tend to be spun off or subsidiaries of huge corporations. They tend to get laden down with debt that maybe isn't necessarily like theirs directly. Um, so as of right now, they have about $2.9 billion in debt, and they're only caring about $1.5 billion in cash, uh, which is a bit lopsided. You don't want that exactly. Um, really, the story here is going to be how much growth do we think is left. To be fair, the last two years, they have become increasingly profitable, which is not something they had been doing. So that's very nice to see. Um But yeah, I just, I am not embedded in the F1 world enough to confidently say, yes, we will be scheduling whatever three new races a year, and that will lead to us to be 
to maintain 20% revenue growth for the next, whatever, five or seven years. I know that the expansion plan for the league is uh, sizable. So maybe, yes, they will be able to maintain this growth. But it's just kind of just outside of my bubble of knowledge. Um, But if you are very into F1 and feel that, yes, that this is attainable, I I know that the events have become incredibly popular. It's like they recently launched an F1 race in Texas, and I think the whole thing sold out in like an hour. So um, there's definitely demand there. It's just how how long will this demand continue? Anne-Marie, did you have to take a uh, did you have to take a deliberate decision not to go to Lululemon like me? I it did cross my see I checked in with Nike as well because uh-huh. I know Nike's yeah, me too. stock has traded down considerably but they have mm. a lot of uh, inventory issues that they haven't yet solved. So I left them on the table. But yeah, I did consider Lululemon, but I just, we, we talked about them a lot. Yeah, so. we did. I also went with UA. I surprised myself. I ended up getting warmed up and yeah. interested in Under Armour. I thought it's kind of oversold at the minute. So yeah, anyway, went with, with golf, Titleist. Pantsticks and balls, right, guys? Pantsticks and balls. <laughs> if you're going to do it, keep doing it to do it. <laughs> I, to be fair, actually, when I was doing research, I actually came across another sports company, which I won't name because I was so impressed by it. I was like, oh, I need to send info to Emmett about this because maybe he should think about it for Horizon. Oh, say no more. Send it to me yeah. in a secret message. Self-expiring, yeah. self-exploding or whatever the right expression is. <laughs> yeah, and this week's uh, Charging and Fearless as well is a very sports-focused company. It is, yeah. You, yeah. you wrote that one up. How do you feel about yeah. it? I do. I would invest in it tomorrow. But you can only see that if you sign up in the show notes. Um no, that was great. I think F1 is an interesting one, just considering how much it's grown and like seeing such a pivotal moment with the Netflix show and, and, and the growth since has been really interesting, I suppose. So yeah, two good ones there in Akushnit and F1. What's um, F1's ticker? It's a funny one, isn't it? Fwonk. Fwonk, <laughs> yeah. W-O-N-K, Fwonk. <laughs> Fwonk, okay. So there you go. And why? Sorry, come on. How did they come up with that? It's because I think. Oh, oh yeah, the K F- is an ADR, and then the F yeah. is. Oh yeah, yeah. F one. Okay. F one. Yeah. F one. Yeah, one. Like. It's the K ruined it. The K ruined it. The K really is doing an awful lot of. They need to go to full list and get rid of that K. Okay, we're gonna finish out the show with just a quick word from our friends at Vodafone Business. So Vodafone Business, in my eyes, has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they've been stepping up their game. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. It's truly transformed them from just a telecoms provider to a comprehensive technology partner, helping you navigate the digital landscape with ease. Vodafone's mission has always been to connect for a better future, and they're doing just that for Irish businesses. They're really stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember, Vodafone Business is there to support, guide, and empower you every step of the way. Okay, Emma and Emery, thank you very much for joining me today and thank you very much for everyone who is listening in. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends about us, share it with whoever you like, leave us a review, all that good stuff. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.